Welcome to Podcast for Sales Engineers. Proof is in the pudding. This podcast is brought to you by Smart POC platform, pudding.app. And I'm your host, Vikaria. We have a very experienced and seasoned sales engineering leader. He is currently a director of sales engineering at Mako Networks. We have Ronak Patel in our show today. Uh, Ronak, can you give us some background and introduction about you, about Mako Networks, what you do? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Vic. I appreciate this. Um, this is my first podcast recording, so I am very excited and um, sincerely thank you for this opportunity here. Yeah, like you said, uh, I head up the sales engineering team at Mako Networks. Uh, been with them for seven years. Been in the space, um, sales engineer for 13 years or so, roughly in various capacities from the point of sale industry, loss prevention, and now cybersecurity with um, specialty on PCI compliance and SD-WAN. I guess, fun fact, I've been working from home for the last 10 years and like many of us in the industry, been in and out of airplanes and hotel rooms uh, over the last decade or so. I guess for sales engineers, I think the flight is probably their office. That's where they live. Now I want to move to talk more about sales engineering itself. And I know you have been running sales engineering for a long time. How early do you like sales engineering teams to get engaged in, the, in any customer deals or any opportunity that's going on? Preferably, I would say as early as possible, when possible. Obviously, it's not always possible. Prospecting and qualification is typically a function of a pure sales rep or an account executive whose sole task is to um, go whale hunting or basically bring in new opportunities. But the, the ability of a sales engineer to insert themselves as early as possible uh, will help new sales rep better qualify deals bring in quality deals and, um, you know, help with that discovery process and get engaged as early as possible. What that helps is it fast tracks a lot of the engagement. It establishes the credibility of your product, you as an organization and, and as a professional early in and just builds that foundation of trust as early as possible. So I know it's not always possible, but I would say as early as possible, the sales engineer can get in there and help um, get in front of any objections or concerns and basically help qualify a prospect as soon as possible. Right. It makes sense. So with that, do you see any challenges with the technical pre-sales and getting involved early and uh, running through the sales engineering process? What are some of the challenges that you face uh, during the sales cycle? One thing that, you know, especially now more so than ever, that there's, if you're, if you're a customer, you have, you're bombarded with options and overstimulation and everyone's trying to sell you something. Every piece of technology is affordable now in a monthly subscription model. Um, and the barrier of entry for a vendor is as low as it's ever been. And the, the playing field in the competitions is as stiff as it's ever been. So that's one challenge I see. Um, another challenge you, you run into, especially, you know, if you're a vendor and the terms of your agreement are on a three year terms and the customer's purchasing on, on a three year cycle, a lot of times um, the timing 
is a very key challenge and something to be very keenly aware of. Um, many times customers for years at a time, they're not in the, so in the shop for a solution, but when they are in the shop for a solution, your, your window of opportunity as a, as a vendor is very slim to get in there. So if you miss that window of opportunity with the customer that you've been keeping an eye on and you miss that window of opportunity, that may not open up for a few years. So I'd say that's, a, that's another challenge. <clears throat> um, in terms of other challenges, I would say during, you know, we'll, we'll discuss the, pro, the proof of concept phase specifically, but lengthy proof of concepts can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. And the longer the proof of concept phase extends, the more risks that come along with it. So right. you have risks of them testing other vendors, you have risks, something happen, happening with the champion within that company. You know, if they move on to another company or something like that, or if they get fired. So the longer proof of concept goes, uh, that poses a risk. And I guess the last challenge that you have in technical pre-sales, I would say, is competing influence within a customer's organizations. So, you know, you may have one person in that organization like your solution, but maybe you have another associate within that organization that's a loyal fan of your competitor. So you have competing influences within your customer, which is, can be a challenge sometimes. I do agree. Uh, and I've seen it many times, especially you, the point you made about running long POCs. So that brings me to my next question to you. How does a successful proof of concept or a POC looks like to you? I mean, what are some of the components in a POC? If you can talk about some of the best practices that you follow or you've seen working in the field. Well, I'd say this is a, a successful POC or proof of concept is it's an art as much of, as it is a science. There's a couple different things you want to consider, you want to follow as you're going through this phase. One, I would say you want to understand your customer's business problem. You want to understand uh, what they're looking to achieve, uh, not only through a proof of concept, but also through your solution and what value your solution adds. For the proof of concept specifically, you want to understand what their success criteria is and what their timeline is. Now, success criteria and timeline, you could set that, you can make it concrete, but those two things are still subject to change and deviation. So there has to be a little bit of flexibility there. But as much as you can understand that, that helps you set a solid foundation for a successful proof of concept. From there, you move into actually designing the solution and what it's going to look like in their environment, understanding the nuances of their environment, and planning an actual implementation, deciding whether you're going to implement that in a lab environment first or you're going to go straight to a location. There's pros and cons to both of them. To implement it in a, in a, in a lab environment first, it's a little more low risk. You can work out the kinks in that environment to implement it directly into a, a live site. It's a little more higher risk because you're you haven't really accounted for all potential obstacles. Right. You know, there a lot of times there's a lot of surprises when you when you try to pl uh, implement in a, a direct site. But um, right. and and there are a lot of uh, controls or approvals that you have to also go through uh, when, especially when you're going on a customer site or deploying on the live site. Exactly, uh, but also you know you have timelines. So sometimes customers will procrastinate. And then at the, you know, at the 11th hour, say, hey, we need to get the solution in. So you may not actually have the luxury of time for testing and a full thorough evaluation. So 
you know, the, on the plus side, if you go directly to live site and you're able to prove, prove it out, then it could mean, you know, faster time to deployment and, and customer engagement. So I would say from there, you have the testing evaluation, understanding what they're, again, you know, understand what their success criteria is while they're doing the testing. And I think um, one of the most important parts of a successful proof of concept is the level of which you can get the customer engaged in using the solution, make sure they're actively using it, looking at their user logs, making sure they're logging into the platform, whatever it is that you're presenting to them. So if you could get that customer adoption and customer engagement, you can get faster feedback, you can work through any issues that they may have with the, with the solution and get them using the solution as soon as possible. So I think the most important phase of the proof of concept is actually getting the customer engaged and bought in and actually using the solution. Right, and I think that goes back to defining the success criteria. If you're defining the success criteria that is relevant to the customer, that is something customers are willing to solve and spend time on. That automatically makes it a bit more interesting for the customer rather than doing something which is not really a pain point for the customer and that they don't see that as a value during the POC. And yes. you also brought up a really good point about doing the POC in the lab versus in the live environment. There are both uh, pros and cons of that. The cons are you don't have enough control. You probably will have to go through a lot of hoops to get things installed. POC will probably stretch a bit more because you will probably have IT or someone telling what to do, what not to do. But at the same time, the pros are most of the time, the POC probably will convert automatically into a live deployment. Uh, depends on what the product is. But customer can see more uh, how the product will fit into the live environment. So it, I think they are both pros and cons. And it depends on how you plan the whole POC. What exactly are you trying to show? Is it, uh, yeah. is, can you show everything in the lab or is, does, do you need to actually go in the production environment? Exactly. And, you know, I think, um, you know, any discussions that leads to putting it in a production environment or talking about deployments or rollouts, that's the most successful POC, right? Once customers actually had the chance to test it in a live site or in an environment and they start discussing what a successful rollout would look like, that's when, okay, you know, you've, you've done your job in a POC and now you're actually talking about deployment. That's the ideal scenario that you, that's the end goal for everybody. And then, as a sales engineer, you want to make sure that you actually have a successful transition from a successful POC to the deployment. So that's, you know, you run a little risk there because now this is, this is a part where uh, the sales engineer, depending on your organization, may take a step back from the project, move it to a deployment team, but still kind of keep it on their radar and just make sure everything goes smooth, that the customer has the full adoption as they scale with your platform. Right. So now I, I want to move to on the topic of sales engineering teams themselves. Typically, as a sales engineers, we have our own territory, we have our own quota, and we are chasing our own customers most of the time. And that is even more true for the teams who have dedicated sales engineers for a specific region. How do you manage especially with the teams spread across different geographical regions can you how to what are the some of the best practices or what are some of the effective strategies for managing teams across multiple geographical regions this is an important one especially if you're a global vendor um, and you have resources and in time zone you know us personally we have resources in the united kingdom we have resources in australia new zealand so we have 
you know, we have engineers around the clock, right? So I think uh, communication is very important here. Uh, tools like instant messaging and channels, you know, a lot of companies use Slack and Microsoft Teams. Having the instant messaging and the channels where you could post important messages about key accounts or key product development things or items. So everyone's just kind of on the same page. They, they have a central repository of files and updates where they could look and, and get up to speed. I think understanding and respecting people's schedules and time zones is also important. You know, know when it's important, know when it's appropriate to send an email versus call or text or an IM. I think, you know, when you have resources around the world, I think respecting people's schedule as much as possible is the right thing to do. Also, I'd say also overlapping resources on the project is, is important. I think the bigger the project, the more of a team sport you want to make it. So you may have a resource that is a lead for a particular project, but you also want to make sure you haven't siloed all your resources into one individual. So I think making sure that you have some overlapping resources is, um, is a good practice. Again, so it's a team sport, and if one person has to be pulled into a different project or is on the plane, you have other resources that could jump in on the whim and not have to take too much time to get up to speed. I would say another, another thing that um, would also help is having general configuration standards and best practices almost as a cultural norm. And what I would say, I guess an example is if you're an organization delivering a product as a culture, you know, for, for us personally, we're in the PCI DSS space. A lot of our retailers have to adhere to the stringent requirements of PCI DSS. And one of the things that we like to do is make sure our customers' card data environment is segmented and secure. So if you have general configuration templates that you generally deployed, every customer is specific, they have their unique nuances to their environment. But generally speaking, if you have a cultural standard or security practice that you use to deploy to your customers, I think that helps infuse your team with the spirit that you want them to engage the customers with. So I think right. um, that also helps a lot, balancing the, just balancing autonomy and support, um, giving, giving the engineers the spirit and the way of thinking to engage with the customers, but being available to support them at all times makes it easier for you know, for everyone to achieve their objectives. You mentioned actually a very interesting point there about standardizing. And I think uh, that can also fit well in, in terms of standardizing POC processes. So everybody across multiple geographies where it is not always possible to think how people are doing what they're doing, standardizing some of the POC processes itself can actually uh, help uh, teams execute at the same level of efficiency. Absolutely. And it also delivers consistency um, in your product, right? When, you're, uh, when it comes to service delivery, you're delivering a consistent, um, a consistent product, no matter who you're, uh, who you're deploying it to and who's actually from your organization is deploying it to. Right. As a sales engineer, we, like you said, we want to get involved as early as possible so we understand what customer wants. But I think one aspect of the engagement is doing the demos. And like you said, uh, POC is more of an art than a science. I guess that holds true for the demos also. 
and uh, they're also uh, you know kind of art of uh, delivering a demo that makes customer see the real value of the product what are some of your insights or um, suggestions for SEs to do the best demo what have you seen working in the field that gets customer attention or converts an opportunity quickly into the next level I think one of the new things is, especially if you're new to doing uh, presentations or a demonstration, um, I, would, I would recommend for, for someone if they want to take their presentation game to the next level to record themselves doing a demo. It's very awkward and it's very uncomfortable and borderline cringeworthy to hear yourself do a demo <laughs> and presentation, but it's, a, it's, it's such a valuable exercise. You build a lot of right. self-awareness you learn your voice tone um, basically as you know when you're doing a demo whether it's in person or even virtual your your role is to have a little bit of command um, of the room whether you're physically there or not and you have to have a really strong voice you have to have a, you have to be confident in, in your voice and, and in your tone in presenting who you are as an organization and a solution so I'd say my first tip would be especially if you're new to this is to actually record yourself doing a demo so that that definitely helps the second part of it i would say is it seems obvious but you want to research your customer or your partner whoever you're, whoever you're solution selling to and know as much going in as possible obviously you, you know there's tons of reasons right there you can look at their website you can look at their linkedin profile so understand who you're actually talking to know the audience whether it's a primarily if it's a business audience if it's a technical audience you want to know who you're going to be speaking to and i like to begin the demos with uh, a broad range of questions just so i know you know who we are you know what kind you know what they what they're what the environment that that we're going to be going into ask them you know a little bit of probing questions understanding their business problems what they're looking for in a solution, understanding those things. And I think asking questions at the beginning of a demo um, establishes a little bit of engagement and it helps you personalize the session. So I think one of the, some of the best demos I would say is more of a personalized demo. So uh, to the degree you're able to personalize your presentation and your demo would definitely help. It gives uh, the customer that personalized field for sure. And um, having a general narrative and script, you know, helps, you know, the story of your company, the story of your product, you know, the industries you serve. So having that general narrative helps, but also just allow room for deviation, you know, demos and, and presentations can go off on a tangent. Sometimes you just need to let that happen. Uh, but having a general, uh, narrative helps and obviously, you know, just be, you know, just, just listen and just be attentive and, you know, be, you know, keep the, I like to keep the formats loose and open. You know, those are, you know, getting the customer to think and to ask questions and to be engaged um, helps to have a really productive uh, demonstration. Do you have any, any sales engineering hacks that you have found useful uh, for the sales engineers? Um, I'm not sure if there's any hacks per se. I would just say there's some, there's some ways of thinking that you, sh you should consider, right? So as a sales engineer, I like to say, be the SME. Uh, and the SME is a subject matter expert. So whether that's your product and your industry, um, you want to stay educated. Uh, you want to stay in front of the products that you're, you're developing internally. And also what's going on, not only in your industry, but in, in the macro world itself. What's happening 
in the economy, what's happened in the geopolitical scene, um, how does the coronavirus affect your supply chain, um, how does the tariffs affect your supply chain, how does um, a Cold War with Iran uh, present a cybersecurity threat to you or your customers. Um, I, so I would say, you know, just the way of thinking, just be knowledgeable in your little world, uh, but also the, uh, the greater world around you. I think it helps you become a well-rounded sales engineer and helps to have meaningful conversations with your customers. So I, I say that that'd be one hack, uh, if you will. Uh, I would say also, you know, uh, master the soft skills and emotional intelligence. You know, you deal with a lot of volatile emotions, especially when you're dealing with uh, high ticket technology and sales and budgets and um, decisions where customers need to be, you know, internally, they're responsible for the decision of choosing you as the vendor. So you have to master those soft skills, emotional intelligence, be responsive to your customers' needs. And also I'd say, you know, the one, you know, the one thing I would leave and for a sales engineer to consider is, you know, as, as a technology vendor, what you're looking to do is you're not only looking to solve business problems, but you're looking to improve customers' lives. So if your product is able to keep that customer, prevent their phone from ringing while they're trying to have dinner with their family or whether, when, while they're at their kid's baseball game, if you're able to keep their phone from ringing during those times, you've not only solved the business problem, but you improve, you've improved their quality of life. And that could be the difference between having a customer that's there on a three-year term or a six or nine-year term and really just right. develop that trust. Uh, have you seen uh, the sales engineering process working differently for small versus large customers? Is, it, is the process pretty much the same or have you seen, let's say, sales engineers need to handle the smaller customers versus bigger customers in a different way? Not what I mean is that we spend less time or less, uh, you know, attention to smaller customers, more about the business, the way they run the business in terms of their own internal processes. So how do you see, uh, is it different for you? Is it, or, or is it pretty much same for you? There are some key differences and some really key considerations you need to take into account here. So generally speaking, the, the larger the customer, the higher cost of customer acquisition there is and the, the lengthier the time, not only in the sales process, sometimes the lengthier proof of concept. So you're generally having to shell out more resources over a lengthy period of time, the larger that customer is. You may have to go through a formal RFI, RFP, before you even get invited to do a demo or a presentation, before you get invited to a proof of concept. Whereas if you're dealing with a smaller customer, you may not even have to go through a formal POC. Now, you know, the, the smaller customers, sometimes they present their own set of challenges, right? So they may have budget constraints, they may have a knowledge gap, they may have resource constraints. But the, the, the one thing to also consider is you may actually have to deal with a blend of large and small customers at the same time. And I'll give you an example. So if you're selling to a major brand and they're in a corporate franchisee model, you may actually have to deal with the corporate entity. They may actually have 1,000 or 2,000 locations themselves, but they may have approved you as a vendor for their smaller franchisees, which may be, may be comprised of onesie, twosies, or 30 to 50 to 100 units as well. So both are very important, 
you may actually have to deal with both at the same time and both present their own set of challenges. So you do have to account for being able to support uh, both successfully. That, that's, a, that's a very good input. Any, any technology or non-technology or any book that you've read recently and you can share with us? Yeah, so there's, um, there's been a few, of course, in my career that's upheld me. There's a book called Spin Selling. I think the author's Neil Rackham. It was written in the 80s, but it's still very relevant today. It's about the solution sale and the complex purchasing decisions that are made during the solution sale. Uh, the Miller-Hyman Strategic Selling is a very, a very good book as well. Uh, these days, I've been reading a lot of Robert Greene. He's a historian and an observer of human nature. I think if you're a sales engineer trying to improve your soft skills, the author Robert Greene is, is a phenomenal author. He delves into the psychology around it. He's a, he has a book called The 33 Strategies of War. And definitely, you know, sales engineering is similar to warfare. So, you know, Robert Greene right now is my favorite author. All right. So I guess my last question is, as a sales engineer, we love using tools and applications. What are some of your favorite tools and applications that you find very uh, useful and productive? Right now, I'm a big fan of Microsoft Teams. It's a pretty, it's a very sticky platform. So we have all the chat channels. Uh, it's an IM tool and um, it's easy to set up webinars and meetings through that. And um, I guess the one thing that's really convenient is a lot of our own customers are starting to use Microsoft Teams. So you have that cross compatibility with your customers so you don't have to wait for them to download uh, an executable or, or a program in order to launch a meeting. So right now I would say today, my favorite tool is Microsoft Teams. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ronak. I think that concludes our podcast today. And uh, thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, you gave us a great insight and uh, we look forward to talking to you again in uh, future episodes. All right. Thanks, Vic. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Pudding is a smart POC platform that elevates the POC experience for sales teams and their customers. Sales engineering teams use Pudding for tracking, managing, and automating POC activities. Find out more at pudding.app.